This sermon was recorded at Highway Mountain View in Mountain View, California. If you'd like to find out more about Highway Community, you can head to www.highway.org. Well, this morning we are continuing our teaching series in Galatians entitled Set Free to Live Free, where we're exploring what it means to live according to the freedom that comes from the transforming presence of God's Spirit in our lives. And to get started today, we're going to look at the advertisement that both TV Guide and Advertising Age have named the greatest television commercial of all time. How's that for some suspense? Here it is. Take a look. Today we celebrate the first glorious anniversary of the information purification directives for the first time in all history, a garden of pure ideology, where each worker may bloom, secure from the pests of a computer will introduce Macintosh and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984 yes how many of you remember that commercial remember when that came on that commercial aired for the very first time yes during the third quarter of the Super Bowl in 1984 and one of the many things I think that is interesting and unique and unusual about Apple's iconic ad announcing the Macintosh computer is the suspension, actually, of that announcement. Right? That commercial is 60 seconds long, twice as long as a normal advertising spot. And yet, the announcement that Apple will introduce the Macintosh on January 24th doesn't come until the last eight seconds. And that is because Apple's famous 1984 ad wasn't simply announcing the Macintosh computer. It was also announcing something bigger, right? which is precisely what all of that epic imagery in the first 52 seconds is all about. Right? The images from George Orwell's novel, 1984, which is about a dystopian future ruled by a television, televised big brother. Right? That imagery from Orwell and the images of the Olympic hammer thrower combine to make a powerful statement. And up to that point in time, computers were primarily used and viewed as tools that were used to perform certain functions. So computers at that point in time were viewed in a very utilitarian kind of way. And that's reflected in the commercial by the very hypnotic and robotic responses of the people. And in addition to that, something else that was true at that time is that it was IBM during those years, also known as Big Brother, that dominated the personal computer market. And so as Apple symbolically throws the hammer through both of those things in the commercial, but they're not just announcing a new computer. 
Right? They're not just announcing a new computer, they're also announcing the dawn of an entirely new computer age as well. And it's an age that's all about computers being used, not as utilitarian tools, but as computers being used to express individuality and creativity in a truly personal way. And so there's an announcement of a computer, but there's a bigger announcement that's also being made about an entirely new age in computers. And it's interesting that Paul, as he writes to the churches that he started in Galatia, as, as Paul writes to the Galatian churches, we actually see him doing something very similar. But as he addresses the specific issues around the teaching of the Jewish Christians who would come into the church, Paul isn't just reminding the Galatians that God's acceptance comes by grace through faith in Christ. He isn't just telling them that. He's also showing them that that experience that they've had is also a part of a larger story. And even more importantly, it's also a sign of the coming of an entirely new age. And so in much the same way as Paul deals with some very specific things in Galatians, he's also pointing to a larger story and an entirely new age as well. Now, last week we saw Paul doing that by demonstrating how scripture, going all the way back to God's original promise to Abraham, really confirmed the experience of the spirit that the Galatians had had. And as we pick up the action this morning in, in the middle of chapter 3, we're going to see Paul continuing that discussion of God's promise to Abraham and exploring the implications that it has on the Old Testament law. If you have your Bible with you this morning and you'd like to join me in Galatians, You'll find it towards the end of your Bible, sandwiched right between 2 Corinthians and Ephesians. The words also, as always, are on the screen behind me, and you're welcome to follow along there. Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 15. Brothers and sisters, Paul begins, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For the, if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. And so Paul starts here, we see, with an illustration, he says, from everyday life, specifically the example of a person's will. And Paul's basic argument here in these verses is that a covenant of inheritance, right, a last will and testament, can't be changed once it's been properly established. Covenant of inheritance can't be changed once it's been properly established. And so, legally speaking, right, once one of these covenants has been established, someone can't just come along and add to it or subtract from it or nullify it and cancel it altogether. Right, so Paul begins with that point, and then he applies that principle to the covenant promise that God made with Abraham. Now, last week... We saw Paul drawing on God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 to bless all nations through him as evidence that the Galatians were already included as children of Abraham and recipients of the promise of the Spirit. 
And here in verse 16, we see Paul essentially reiterating that same point. The Galatians are included, Paul says, because the promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. Scripture does not say unto seeds, meaning many people, but unto your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Now, once again here, like we saw last time, we see Paul reinterpreting or remixing, if you will, the Old Testament in light of what's happened through Jesus. God, remember, called Abraham, along with his wife Sarah, at the age of 75, to leave everything, to leave his father's household, his people, his country, to leave everything and go to a new place that God was going to show them. And Genesis chapter 12, verse 4 says that Abraham went. And in Genesis chapter 13, when Abraham finally arrived in the land of Canaan, God told him to look around. And he said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 13, verse 5, all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. Now, the word that's translated as offspring there in that verse can also be translated as seed. And the Jews traditionally understood that to refer to them. But look again at how Paul reads it in verse 16. He makes a really interesting observation there. And that is that the word seed is singular and not plural. The word seed is singular and not plural. So scripture doesn't say that the promises were spoken to Abraham and his seeds. It says that they were promised to Abraham and his seed, singular. And so Paul's big reveal then to the Galatians and to the Jewish teachers here, based on that insight, is that this one singular seed is Christ. Right? This one singular seed that's referred to here in the Old Testament is actually Christ, who came as the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And so God's covenant with Abraham, Paul teaches here, is realized in Christ. And for Paul, that's just further proof from the Old Testament that the Gentiles and the Galatians are already included in the original promise. And they're included, just like Abraham, based solely on God's grace through faith. And the law, since it came later on, can't change and, and doesn't change that original covenant that God made with Abraham. Look again at verse 17. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. And so Paul is telling the Galatians there that despite everything that these Jewish Christian teachers were telling them, they can't be excluded because they don't follow the law. Circumcision, the laws concerning what food was permissible and wasn't permissible to eat, the festivals that were a part of the Jewish calendar, all of those things came later. They came 430 years later, after God's covenant with Abraham. And because they came afterwards, they can't change the original covenant. And so the promise of inheritance rests solely and completely on the promise that God made with Abraham and not on the law. Now, Paul knew the question that was going to be 
on the minds of his opponents at this point. Right? If, as he was arguing, everything was provided in the covenant of Abraham, then what actually was the purpose of the law? Why did God even give the law at all? And Paul answers that beginning in verse 19 of Galatians 3. Why then was the law given at all? Paul poses the question himself. Glad you asked. <laughs> it was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred to had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted through a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We see in those verses that Paul reveals two important purposes of the law. And the first of those we see in verse 19 is that the law reveals sin. Right? Part of the law's role, part of the law's purpose was to reveal sin. Paul says that the law was added because of transgressions. And so one reason that God gave the law was to reveal that certain kinds of behavior are sinful. Well, Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. He says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And so the law was given in part as an instrument of judgment. It was given to make us conscious of sin. But we also see in verse 19 that this was a temporary function, right? Paul says that the law was added because of transgressions until the seed, right, the singular seed, the singular offspring, Jesus, right? The law was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. And so Paul teaches that one purpose of the law was to reveal sin until the coming of Jesus. Now, in addition to that, in addition to its role in revealing sin, we also see in these verses that God gave the law to serve as a guardian as well. The law was not only given to reveal sin, it was also given to serve as a guardian. Look at verse 23. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now, the term that Paul uses there that's translated as guardian by the NIV in verses 24 and 25 is an interesting one. The Greek word is pedagogue. And it's a word that's used to refer to a particular kind of household slave in the ancient world whose job was to guide a family's children back and forth from school, uh, protecting them from harm and also providing some moral guidelines for them along the way. 
And so the law is, Paul says, a pedagogue. And by using that term, Paul is really saying that part of the law's purpose was to function in that very same way. Its role was to, to lead and guide and, and guard against sin. It was to be a pedagogue. Once again, though, just like with the law's function of revealing sin, Paul emphasizes that this role, right, the law as guardian, was also a temporary role as well. And not only is that inherent in the image of the pedagogue itself, right, since a guardian was something that a child would eventually grow out of and no longer need once they entered into adulthood. But Paul also says in verse 24 that the law was our guardian, even more directly, until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. And so Paul teaches in these verses that even though the law came later, it nevertheless still had an important complementary role in God's original promise to Abraham. It still had an important complementary role to the original promise, but that role was temporary and it was limited in scope. Verse 25 says, now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And so Jesus, right, this faith that has come, Jesus, we see, ushered in a completely new era. He had ushered in a completely new age, a completely new reality. And that means that the law no longer functions in the same way. And that is what Paul wanted the Galatians and wanted these Jewish Christian teachers among them to see that the law was no longer the thing that they were to pattern their lives after. Instead, they were to pattern their lives after Jesus, who transcended the law through his coming. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight makes an interesting comparison between the role of law in history and the role that typewriters have played in the development of word processing to try to help explain Paul's argument here in more modern terms. Uh, some of us here this morning uh, are old enough to remember actually using a manual typewriter. I'm not going to ask for you to raise hands. You know who you are. But, uh, but if, the, if the term whiteout or ribbon has meaning to you, that's probably an indication that perhaps you've used one of those. Some of us are old enough to have actually used a manual typewriter in our lives. Over the years, that the idea and the technology of the typewriter developed into something else, right? It developed into a faster more complex machine, which is the computer, right, that now does the thing that we call word processing. Now, when we type on a computer today, we're still using the old technology of the manual typewriter. But at the same time, as we're typing on the computer, we also realize, as we're using that old technology, that the computer far transcends the typewriter. Right, the computer is essentially everything that a typewriter ever hoped or wanted to be, and much, 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 much more than that. Right? And because of that, when the computer arrived, we put the typewriters away for the most part. Right? Hopefully all of you have done that. Right? But when the computers arrived, we put the typewriters away because they belong to an old era. They belong to a former era. We put them away because we are now living in the computer age. Right? And that is essentially Paul's critique here of these teachers in Galatia. Right? By emphasizing 
the law among these the people of these churches that Paul had started, by emphasizing the law, the Jewish Christian teachers were effectively asking the Galatians to use manual typewriters when they already had computers on their desks. And Paul is trying to get them to understand that a new age has come. A new age has come. And just like the computer far transcends the typewriter and is everything that a typewriter ever wanted to be, so too so too, everything that the law ever wanted to be and hoped to be when God gave it to Moses originally is now found and fulfilled in the person of Christ. And so the law is no longer the thing that we pattern our lives after. Instead, with the help of the Spirit's presence, we're to pattern our lives after Jesus, who transcended the law and gave it new meaning. We're to pattern our lives not after the law, but after Jesus, who transcended the law and gave it new meaning. During his time on earth, we constantly see Jesus expanding and stretching and elevating the law. And after proclaiming in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. After proclaiming that in Matthew 5, Jesus, in his longest recorded public teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, over and over again, right, redefines the parameters of the law for his followers. And so for Jesus, the command, you shall not murder, isn't just about literally killing someone. It's also something that's applicable to anger. And in particular, the kind of anger that isolates others from relationship and community, which is murder, albeit in a completely different kind of way. Similarly, for Jesus, adultery isn't just a physical act. Jesus says that anyone who lusts with their eyes has committed adultery in their heart. Right? That's the law transcended. Jesus goes on in that sermon to expand and elevate the law relative to marriage and revenge and what it means to give an oath as well. In Luke chapter 10, when Jesus is asked by an expert in the law to clarify who, who exactly constitutes his neighbor when it comes to God's commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, and Jesus responds with one of his best known, one of his greatest stories, right? the parable of the Good Samaritan, which very powerfully and unmistakably teaches that everyone is our neighbor. Right? Again, that's the law, transcended. When it came to the Sabbath, the day of rest that was mandated by God's law, what mattered to Jesus wasn't the mechanical details about what did or didn't constitute work. What mattered to Jesus instead was the spirit of the law. Right? That God had intended the Sabbath to be a gift of rest that was patterned after his own rhythm of rest in creation. That's what God had wanted it to be, not the burden that it had become. Jesus, again, transcending the law over and over and over again. That's what we see Jesus doing, elevating the law, deepening our understanding of the law, stretching the law, expanding the meaning of the law. And for us today now, 
But as, as we live in the age of the Spirit, right, this new age that Paul is announcing here in Galatians, as we live in that age, waiting for God's kingdom to come in full with Jesus' return, that's what we're to pattern our lives after. Right? We are called to the ongoing journey of patterning our lives after Jesus who transcended the law. We are called to pattern our lives after the law transcended. That's what we are called to be about as we live in the age of the Spirit. Nick is going to come and lead us in a song as we close this morning. You know, Paul tells us at the very beginning of Galatians that Jesus' death on the cross has rescued us from this present evil age and set us free to live free. Jesus' death has rescued us from this present evil age and set us free to live free. And so we've been set free right, to live into the law in a dynamic way. We've been set free to live into the law in a way that, that stretches us. We're set free to live into the law in a way that, that deepens our connection with God's heart and God's spirit. We're set free to, to live into the law in a way that it's evidence of God's love in the world. Jesus shows us what it looks like to pattern our lives after him. He shows us what it looks like to transcend the law. May we live into that calling that we are privileged to have as we live together in the age of the Spirit, endeavoring to embody the love of God in this world embody the kingdom of God in this world until Jesus comes to usher it in, in full. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Father, this morning for another reminder that you give us from Galatians that we belong blessed that we're included that we are part of your original promise to bless all peoples through Abraham we thank you for your grace thank you father for rescuing us through your son Jesus Thank you for the presence of your spirit in our lives. And Holy Spirit, would you show us the ways that you want to stretch us as we seek to pattern our lives after Jesus? Would you show us the ways that you want us to embody the spirit of the law in our relationships and in our world. 
Holy Spirit, would you give us courage to set you free and the courage to want more of you and more of your love. In Jesus' name, amen.